Draw your face on a poster card For five cents I lay down Sat and dreamed of you all day By the river on the ground I drank the soda from a can That I carried in my pouch I ate the sandwich that I made Before I left the I was dreaming of heaven when I looked up in the sky And I saw myself in a cloud rushing by And I called to it, just stop and answer why Why must I fall in love so easily I could have stumbled and fallen twice But you know it's that much harder When you're looking for paradise So I'm grown in that much older Still I look up in the sky I want to see my childhood sweetheart Right there in your eyes Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to the song Looking for Paradise from the Todd Coyle Trio CD from a few years ago. And Todd Coyle is the gentleman who wrote the song. He's playing guitar, I think he's playing bass, and I think he's playing some piano and a few other things on this CD. 
and he's one of my favorite performers. And the reason for it is he's so darn laid back when he's performing. And he's probably at the epicenter of the Charlestown, West Virginia, Shepherdstown, West Virginia music scene. He's kind of like the glue. He and Bill, the bass player. And he's on the phone right now with me. Todd Coyle, how are you? I'm doing well today, Mr. Walker. Well, good to hear your voice. Well, you as well, and I hope you're well every day, actually. Yeah, I've been, I've been doing pretty good. Good. Now, that CD, the Todd Coyle Trio, how long ago was that? Oh, gosh, that was like uh, 16, 17 years ago at this point. And you still sound the same. <laughs> well, I like to think so. So, <laughs> so. I think my voice has aged a little bit. It happens to us all. Yeah. Now, that is a very kind of light and lively, has a very, what I call a 70s kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Just very comfortable. I, can, I picture myself with the top down and my old MG midget cruising down, you know, back road with a surfboard sticking out the back and listening to that song. <laughs> is that... Yeah. Is that the kind of, because you do everything from blues to rock and roll to kind of what we would call folk, indie folk, pop. You're quite the the guy about town musically. Have you always been that kind of guy? Um, yeah, kind of. I'm not sure I'm at the epicenter anymore. I've kind of aged out of that. Um, uh, but, you know, for 30 years I was, you know, in the middle of everything. Uh, that happened around here. Um, and that wasn't any kind of thing that I meant to do. It was just, um, you know, I was driven to play music. And, you know, um, back in the early days, there wasn't a lot of venues. So we just sort of created venues and, you know, um, and just made it happen. And what came out of that early period with me and several others around here, we just sort of created a scene. Now, how do you go about creating venues? Oh, we did everything from, um, you know, uh, renting um, um, spaces to doing things in fields at people's houses. Um, you know, we talked one of the bars into letting us run, uh, start an open mic, which ended up lasting for 16 years. Wow. Um, and um, so, you know, there was... You know, you know, back in those days, there was like a, a community um, a building downtown, and there was a you know little uh, yard out back with a with a um, a porch on it, and we would just you know rent the place out and throw a party. Or you know, there was down on had a, a lot of places down on the river, and we would just throw river parties and put on these festivals and. You know, we just wanted to play for people. <laughs> and so we did whatever we could to, you know, make that happen. And, and and part of that, too, was just, like, saying yes to anything. So, if, you know, a church group had, had, was having a Sunday afternoon tea. Yeah, I said, sure, we'll play. And, you know, uh, sometimes you get paid and sometimes you didn't. And um, we just wanted to, we were just, everybody was just so into creating you know, it's almost, you talk about my music having the sound of the 70s, but that's true, because, you know, late 60s and the 70s, with all, all the explosion of, uh, you know, the California sound and the Motowns and uh, uh, Muscle Shoals and all those kind of things, with 
with all these musicians from all over the place that knew each other, and, and they just sort of created this almost a renaissance um, uh, kind of explosion of creativity. And that's kind of what we did here. Now, who were some of the players that you were, who were instrumental along with you? Oh, Sam Felker, um, uh, Steve Camp. Um, gosh, you're racking my brain now. I have to, I have to think. My, my memory isn't what it used to be. <laughs> um, and now, had you grown up with all these people, or you just sort of found yourselves, or found each other because of your love through music? We sort of found each other. I mean, we were all from the region, um, but what I've found is if you were, uh, you know, a, a dedicated player like that, um, if you just kept going out and playing, you started running into these folks. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, eventually um, became really good friends. I remember when I first came on, and like uh, Steve and Sam were a little bit older and way ahead of me, and I can remember calling them up and say, "Hey, this is going to introduce myself," and them having like a, "Oh yeah, the new kid, whatever." <laughs> and then you know, a year later, we're playing in a band together. So you know, <laughs> yeah, so um, it's it's kind of you know funny how looking back how it all happened. Um, now I have seen exciting. yeah I have seen you both in a band situation at the Earth Day celebration that you put together with. Uh, Bill and a few other folks, but I've also seen you many times solo at like the Frederick Coffee Company at Brewers Alley, um, out mm -hmm. and about. Which which type of performer are you predominantly? What's your favorite? Are you more of a band ensemble player? Or are you more of a solo guy, or does it make any difference? It doesn't really make any difference. They all have their pros and cons to them. Um, you know, playing solo. Uh, is is really a challenge because you know, a lot of songs you have to sound like a band mm -hmm. when you're playing solo, and and that's a challenge. But it's also um, you have to play everything, and it's uh, it's totally up to you. In a band situation, one of the joys I have with playing over the years was was feeding off of other musicians, and um, so you, you can't do that when you're playing solo. Mm -hmm. So when you you know, when you're playing in a band situation, uh, regardless of what kind of music you're playing, there is a communication that happens between uh, various players. And um, if the players are good enough, it, it challenges you, um, but it also inspires you to, to be better, you know? So I always tried to play with people that were better than me or look for those people that knew stuff that I didn't know. Sometimes I didn't know what I didn't know until I got to a band situation, you know, and then like, uh, because I don't read music, I think, but I've played with a lot of people who do and, you know, who are learned musicians. And um, I, I don't know, I must have had some because I kept up with them and, you know, played with them for years. But I'm slightly dyslexic, so reading music was just impossible for me. Um, so, but I, I like, I like all ways of playing it's just i like to play now when i have seen you in in an ensemble and again most of that times those times were at the earth day celebration you're the front man is that very typical of your musical life they they say todd you sing lead you you're out in front 
or is it something that you had to you know scratch and kick and say no I'm the guy in the front no um, I think it's just sort of who I am I, I don't really go into those situations thinking that but I'm usually the, the lead singer um, and um, I don't even though I can play the guitar I don't particularly care about playing the guitar I much prefer playing rhythm guitar um, but I'm the one that was always talking on the microphone. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of really great players. So, you know, there's always downtime between songs and that kind of thing. Um, you know, people changing instruments or whatever. Or, and I was always the one that went up and was comfortable just talking to the audience. So, you know, I just sort of gravitated towards that. And I'm also, generally speaking, in the bands, I'm the one that does the booking and I handle the money um, usually, and um, I'm the business, more businessman kind of person in bands. So it just sort of became a natural thing to be like the leader. Now, was the leadership role regarding the money and the booking and so forth, was that because no one else wanted to do it, or you were just better at it than they were? A, a little of both, actually. Most musicians are not good with money. <laughs> and, and um, you know, uh, I, I grew up around uh, farmers, and my dad was a VOAC teacher and that kind of thing. So I grew up with this work ethic kind of thing. And so for me, um, I learned early on that if you owned the PA system and did the business, that could control where the band goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so. Nine times out of ten, nobody in the band really wants to do that. They just want to play and have fun, you know. So if you have, like, six people in a band, chances are only two of them are really business-focused, if that. So, you know, it just sort of became a necessity because I wanted to succeed, and I wanted to do this for a long period of time. And so, you know, part of it was me looking out for my butt and thinking... You know, I still want to be doing this 10 years from now, and, you know, the drummer may not want to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so it's, you know, I was always thinking, you know, 10 years down the road, what was I going to be doing? I was always planning long term. And I'm kind of a natural organizer. So, um, you know, like you are, I mean, that's one of the things that, I see in you too. You're you're an organizer, and you make things happen, and that's kind of what I do. So it's not just about being in a band. I was also generally in studio situations. I was a producer, so I was the one that made things happen. So uh, it's just sort of a natural way for me to be. Well, that brings up a, a couple of questions regarding your recordings. How many CDs do you have? <laughs> I have. Uh, uh, three solo CDs mm-hmm. um, and one with an, another band and then I've produced several other CDs for folks. Now, where do you have a recording studio of choice or or did you move around a little bit? I move around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, since I do things over a long period of time, you know, uh, studios change. Like the studio I made my first two CDs in doesn't even exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, that happens. So, and technology today is just such that 
most people have a whole studio on their cell phone. Well, that is that is true, and it probably is a better equipped studio than the re- recording studios from the 1970s or 1980s even. Oh, yeah. I've had that discussion with several people that, you know, you have more studio on your cell phone than the Beatles had for all their records. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you think about that and think about what they did in, in their time, um, and that's one of the reasons I love that music, because those guys had very limited um, technology, but they did so much with so little. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's kind of like uh, some of the newer stuff just doesn't hit that mark, even though the technology is 10 times better or 100 times better. Well, do you think that the new newer technology with all the apps and everything like that is a little bit of a crutch and it it uh, takes away some of the creative stuff or the, the work, the hard work people say, oh, we can fix it in post. Uh, yeah, I, I think it does. Um, if you think about all the great recordings over the years um, if, and going back to like the jazz records and stuff, you know, a lot of those things were done in like, um, you know, one take or two takes and everybody played live. I just watched a documentary last week on Muscle Shoals and all the recordings they did with Aretha Franklin and people like that. And, you know, they mic'd the room and everybody just played the song. Mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of, the, you know, my recordings, I've, I've done that way to a certain extent, but at the same time, I've done a lot of overdubbing. Uh, overdubbing makes it really easy. And so I consciously, when I did it, um, tried to do the overdub parts one or two takes. I tried to make it as as organic feeling as I could, and I didn't get down in the weeds with making everything perfect. Uh, the one thing at um, well, the Muscle Shoals uh, thing, the guy who ran that was like he's, he didn't like perfect. Mm-hmm. He liked that. He liked that that element of mistake, you know, that human element in music, and. Um, and I don't believe in perfection. And I think today's music, um, you know, I, I see a lot of it on, on, uh, feeds that I get and a lot of it's really good. But I, it, when I started out, I got this little like $10 guitar that actually on it was like you know, five inches from the neck and which is like, and I sort of had to work up to get it good stuff, you know? And I think sometimes technology of today makes it too easy. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think things a lot of times are better when you have to work for it. If that makes sense. Yes. Oh no, it does. Now, when did you get that? How old were you when you got that guitar? Um, I was eight years old when I got a four string tenor guitar for Christmas. Um, which is basically a huge, a a big ukulele. Um, and my aunt was a music teacher. She gave me three lessons. And um, two years later, I got a Bolero electric guitar for Christmas, which was <laughs> out of the Unity catalog. you got to be old to remember that. Um, and I got a $10 amplifier from a department store. And, um, and I always, you know worked so like mud grass and stuff like that and uh, there was a store downtown that 
Leslie's record land that had uh, acoustic guitars and it was one I wanted. So I mowed grass all summer and um, bought myself a first, what I consider a kind of a real, I mean, I paid a hundred dollars for it, but it was a, a real acoustic. Um, and I sort of worked my way up to that. When I was 15, um, I got a chance to be in a real band and I went to my mom and said, this is a real band and I need a real guitar. And she took me to Winchester and bought me a Gibson Marauder and a, and a crybaby wall off so I could be in this band. And I still have the Gibson Marauder. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And actually I still have the, uh, uh, the harmony tenor guitar I got when I was eight. And, um, and I, I still play the, the Gibson. Um, it's been a great guitar. I've been the only owner. Uh, they, they didn't consider it a, a, a good model, so they didn't. They made it for a couple of years. Um, and I think it's a great guitar. It's served me well for what, uh, 45 years now. Mm-hmm. Now, in that first band, were you the rhythm player? Rhythm, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And what style music? 70s. 70s cover stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, only, it didn't really last that long. I mean, we did a couple gigs, it was a few months, but um, I'm still friends with the guitar player and the drummer from that band. Um, we've done stuff together, all, and they're both still playing and other things. So what happened when that band broke up? How did you proceed? Oh, gosh, I, uh, I remember Christmas was all local and in town here, and I remember... Uh, walking down to a rehearsal with my guitar at the Gibson and nobody was there. And that's how I found out the band had broken up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, crap. So there was this big um, uh, cemetery up the street. So I went up and sat in that cemetery and played for a couple hours and went home. And then I said, okay, that was, that was my first real disappointment in bands. Um, and after that, I just thought, okay, I'm, I'm not good enough, you know? Um, and so I set out at practice. I spent like a year just like practicing everything, scales, learning every song I could, you know, come across. I got, you know, I, I, by that point I was collecting records. And so I just, every day, collect, would play a record. And I try to drive my dad crazy because in the morning when we were eating breakfast, I would sit there while we were eating breakfast with my electric guitar playing scales. And just, you know. <laughs> so after that, it just became a quest to get the skill to be able to play. That, you know. Now, how long did it take you before you felt comfortable? Before I felt comfortable? Yeah, as a player. Like you said, you worked really hard at it. Oh, gosh. I'm still not sure I feel 100% comfortable. Um, that makes you a true musician. Yeah, it was um, probably... Well, at that point, my you know I was really getting into it, and, and my, my dad was not happy about it. So uh, it was about 12 years. Mm-hmm. It, um, and I, I say that because I went through an, uh, another band and then another band. And when that uh, next band broke up, 
um, I, that's just where I learned the money thing because we had bought a PA system and we'd all pitched in, but when the band broke up, I was the only one that wanted the PA system. So I was like, okay, um, let me see if I can come up with money. So I went to my dad and I said, uh, the band's breaking up. I want to buy this PA system and I don't have all the money. Um, but, uh, um, I want to borrow it from you. And I laid it out and said, I have all these gigs lined up and I can pay it back in this order. And um, I have enough gigs over the next like eight months with other bands and other situations um, that I can pay you back. Boom, boom, boom. And that was the first time he looked at me and said, wow, okay. And loan me the money. And that's when I realized that I I made it to a level, you know. I made it to the next level. So, but up until that time, he he had not signed on to the whole band music thing. No, uh, and I don't. I you know I kind of don't blame don't blame him. He was, you know, he was an old school and farmer and kind of thing. And he's like, I want you to be able to make a living. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, yeah, but I can make a living doing this because I looked at music as. Um, like you would if you were a carpenter or a farmer or a plumber or something like that. To me, it was something you did, and if you loved it, you did it, and you made, it, and it was okay to make money at it. So you know, for me, it was kind of business, besides being a passion. Mm-hmm. But it was like what my dad did was force me to look at it like a business because I had to prove to him that I could do it. Yeah. And um, when I when he gave me that loan. That was basically 12 years after I started really playing out and making money at it. And that was the point where, okay, I'm a, that was the point where I started calling myself a musician. Mm-hmm. Now, were you, did you enter into what you and I would call full-time musicianship? Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of funny being a mu- musician like that because, you know, I, I had a day job and I've always had a day job. Um, most musicians do. So you, when you're a musician like that, you have almost two lives. Like you have like a, a day life and a and a, this night life thing. And a lot of times they're completely opposite from each other. Mm-hmm. So so you know, I, at times felt like a, a little like Jekyll and Hyde. Um, you know, and so the daytime was kind of like, okay, this is what my family expects in the nighttime this is what I want so I had you know two full time lives now and probably not getting enough sleep the whole time too well yeah yeah um, you know I've had this conversation with some people I knew back then because I would go um, it wasn't unusual for me to work in my day job and then go play a gig get two hours of sleep get up and go back to work wow and and I learned um, that as long as I got one good night's sleep a week, I was good. I could pretty much go for, you know, three, four days on a couple hours sleep here and there. Now, what were some of the, I remember you doing some work with the Appalachian Trail, and now I think you're, you're in retail or some sort of retail, but what, what were some of the day jobs you had in that growth period? Um, well, let's see, during the college years, I was a, a cook in a in a uh, restaurant, 
And my first job out of college was uh, I worked in a wine distribution warehouse, and I drove a truck. So I delivered wine to grocery stores and stuff. So I did that during the day and played music at night. Um, um, and after that, I um, worked in photo labs. Uh, I did home renovations for a couple of years, uh, landscaping for a couple of years. Uh, the Appalachian Trail, I worked for them for 20 years. Um, and that was a great job. And, and what, what did that, that entail? I mean, what was your position like? In, at, at Appalachian Trail? Yes. I worked in the warehouse. I did um, did their sales and their shipping and uh, receiving. And so I've always, it was customer service, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're a musician, you're basically doing customer service all the time. Right. So, so you know, and that's kind of what I'm doing now with, um, you know, the I do a, a locally, regionally sourced grocery store with uh, in conjunction with a farmer's market called Bushman Peck in Charlestown. So that's, you know, um, and I, I, that's just a part of it, you know. I do customer service and um, ask people for money because it's a non-profit. So that's <laughs> kind of... So it's just kind of natural for me to do that kind of thing. I guess it's just part of who I am and what my personality is. Now, did the uh, did the current position grow out of the farmer's market, or is just kind of went parallel? I uh, grew out of it. Um, it. It's kind of funny how life has just fallen into place for me over the years, because um, after uh, about eight years before the ATC thing ended, we started the farmer's market and that grew and about two years before the ATC thing ended, uh, we started a nonprofit. We had an opportunity. Uh, we were working with the city and they were going to give us this one building for a couple of years to see if we could do an indoor market. And, uh, we had hired a, a couple employees and, you know, I was kind of running the day to day business side of it and um, then I got the word from ATC that they were going to do away with my position and <laughs> at the same time the, the manager we had hired for the nonprofit in the store said he was going to quit and so I went to the you know our board and said hey uh, you know I need a day job and um, you know why don't I just slide into that so they said okay <laughs> since I was since I was running all the business stuff anyway, and it just sort of naturally grew from one thing to the other. And um, I was getting tired of working at ATC. Um, I, I'd grown as far as I could with that organization. Mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't learning anything. And that's the thing with me and how I approached music and stuff. For me, it was always about learning. I always wanted to try something else. I would live on, the, you know, in my day-to-day life, I'm terrified of heights, so I never go to the edge of things, but artistically, I always try to live, live on the edge. You know, I was trying to push the envelope a little bit, and um, I think, you know, that's kind of how I've done it with my day jobs. It's, um, it's very... It's all, it's all kind of like one thing to me. So. Sure. Now, when did you start writing songs? 
Oh, God, I was young. Um, I think I was five. Must have been, and I must have been like eight or nine years old when I fell in love with this little little girl up the street, and I, I wrote her a love song, <laughs> and it's just been that ever since. <laughs> now, just out of curiosity, do you remember any of the lyrics of that love song? None, absolutely none. <laughs> so, so I probably have it uh, on a scrap piece of paper. I never throw any of that kind of stuff away. And the most important so, question out of that is, did you get the girl? I did not. But, <laughs> but I, you know, we became friends and everything. So, you know, we knew each other for years, went through high school and stuff. So. Now, how much of your musical life is original songwriting versus you know, playing other people's music and being in bands and so forth. How much, how much effort, I guess, is the best way to do put put it to um, to songwriting? Yeah, um, that changes over. Uh, sometimes it varies. It's, it's like any relationship, I guess. Sometimes it's fifty fifty. Sometimes it's eighty twenty. Um, it depends on how creative I am at the moment. And um, I mean, there was several years there about the time I made that first record um, where I was writing every day, like from the time I got up in the morning to the time I went to bed. I mean, it was just always all in my, that's one thing when you're a songwriter, <laughs> this was Keith Richards said this in his book, you know, when, once you're a songwriter, everything becomes a song. So if you're reading something or you're watching TV or you see a sign, you know, I, I don't see like a whole sentence. I see like a little couple words go, oh, that would look good in a song. So you're always thinking about that. So trying to divide it out as to what, you know, percentage-wise, it's just, when you're a songwriter and a musician, you, you, you live it every day with everything you do. Now, do you keep some sort of a little notebook to write little things down to remind yourself? Um. Yeah, I tried that for years, but I kept losing the notebooks. And then I ended up having like five or six <laughs> books around. So, yeah, sort of. Yeah, I keep um, blank uh, legal pads like all over my house. Like There's always one on my kitchen table, one on my coffee table, one on my desk. And if something hits, I just start writing stuff down. And sometimes that turns into a song or sometimes it turns into just a couple lines. Um, I think, you know, hopefully years from now when I, when I die, that somebody has to go through all the stuff and they're going to go, what the hell? They're going to read all these lines. Like, and even like sometimes with books, I'll like, um, have stick notes and I'll, and I'll see something in a book that I like, and I'll, I'll, you know, highlight it with a yellow marker and, and put a stick note on the page. And, um, just that kind of stuff just piles up. So, so how do you determine which one of your songs is a good one versus the ones that you just set aside and never go back to? Um, that's organic. It's, um, it's more of a feel thing. Um, and I, I have the same approach with like cover stuff. Songs stick, some do and some don't. And, um, 
I don't have a an explanation for how that works exactly. I've um, I've written songs that I really really liked, and I recorded them some off of, you know some of my CDs, um, and I had a blast writing them and recording them. But after it was recorded and that thing was done, I didn't enjoy playing them live. Mm-hmm. So they just they just kind of you know um, went by the wayside. Um, and once a song is written as a part of, you know, when, as, when I'm playing a, a gig or something, I, I only don't think whether a song is, um, a cover or a, or an original, I, I play what I, I want to play at that moment. So once, once I write a song and it, and it becomes a part of my, uh, uh, my set list of songs, it gets rotated through just like any other song. Mm-hmm. So to me, to me, it becomes equal to all the other songs on the list. Well, one of the songs that you consistently performed solo whenever you were in Frederick, whether it was at the Frederick Coffee Company, whether it was a songwriter showcase or an actual gig, or maybe at the Brewers Alley showcase, was It Reminds. And that's a song mm-hmm. that is one of my favorites. It is, um, it's loosely written about your mom, I think, isn't it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, and that's sort of an interesting story and that, you know, classic point of how I write songs is, um, there's been a couple instances in my life where I couldn't write a song about something. I, no matter, I mean, it was, um, and one of those instances was when my dad died and he was a huge impact on my life and I tried for several years after he died to write a song about him because he was a really good guy I mean we had our differences but he he was just a really good man and um, taught me a lot and I just couldn't write about him and then um, you know about 10 I guess 10 11 years later when I'd formed the Todd Quill trio and the other guitar player Steve Kemp was the other guitar player he and I you know, it was one of the ones that we knew way back. Um, we had this little competition thing going on with songwriting. So every time we had a rehearsal, you know, I'd bring in a new song or he'd bring in a new song and be like, you know, and um, my mom had died. And uh, after spending years uh, dealing with Alzheimer's and um, it was really, really, uh, it, it was a tough time to go through with that kind of thing. And he had written a song that had um, a line about, you know, something about going home. And he and the drummer were on the way over to my house for rehearsals. And I wrote that song for mom in about 10 minutes. Wow. I didn't, I didn't want Steve to show up and me not have a song for him. <laughs> and, and so I took the last line of his song and made the first line of this song or the, or the, you know, change the words around a little bit, but basically the same thing. And then I wrote the whole song on that, and they walked in the door like 10 minutes after I done, I got done writing it. And I said, hey guys, listen to this. And we kind of arranged it that night, but it's the three of us. And they were just like, wow, <laughs> that's a pretty good song, Todd. Well, let's listen to it right now. Okay.
says you can't go home anymore Like flying on a wing Who says you can't cheat the final score And hear the angels sing People gather in halls to respect Like families on a bench You hear the words and you sit and reflect Memories held by a wrench Oh, the actors play their parts And read the scripted lines And the gamblers play their cards And move further back in time And the adolescents broken hearts have tears enough to remind 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 me to get my oil checked like Friday nights in town and oh my dear I've come to expect The unexpected from a clown When someone travels a long great journey And finally rests in peace Who are we to question and learning That cries out for release And I'm glad You're not just lying there Watching creases in the gowns Like a fog Floating through the air Down valleys and into towns It reminds It reminds It reminds me of I think my favorite line in that has always been, remind me to get my oil checked. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I performed that live in Shepherdstown because, uh, you know, all those people and several of them knew my mom and, and um, knew the situation. And that was the one line that stuck out. You know, people, I remember a friend of mine that I grew up with was in the audience and she came up to me afterward. And, get your oil checked? That's well it is a, it is a wonderful song and one of the things i have always said about your performances and i don't i think i've introduced you as such and i think i may have mentioned it to you off mic as well but to other people is you have such a casual nice way of presenting your songs when i see you even with the bands but mostly as a soloist and I almost equate it to like a, an old, comfortable pair of slippers. That's your, <laughs> your style. It's just, it's like I give a, a, you know, one of those, when you've had a tough day and you get home and you sit down in your easy chair and you take off the, the shoes you've worn to work and you put on your slippers and it's that, ah, 
moment. And that's right. that's Todd Coyle singing to me. Right. Yeah, well, um, that's how I am naturally. and But it's also something I've sort of honed over the years. You know, not much worry, worries me that much and um, very little surprises me. I, I was once having my uh, blood pressure taken um, years ago in the nurse because, well, are you, you must be real fully taxed because the because the blood pressure was just getting up to where it would need to be. And she said, "Do you feel?" I was like, "Yeah, great." <laughs> <laughs> I just I just don't I just don't let things bother me like other people do. So it, you know, it's just yeah, that's one of my main characteristics. Well, of the songs that you have written, what are your top two? Oh man. That's like asking, you know, my favorite children. Um, it reminds, it has to be right up there. It's, you know, as an artist, you do, you do all kinds of work and, and, um, you hope that it lasts, but you, the reality is maybe one or two pieces that you produce will last beyond you. And I think that's probably one of them. Um, I think that's a, my greatest achievement as a songwriter. Um, another one, um, man, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, you know, I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, the, I think, do it this way. And this is the way I, when people say, you know, what's your favorite song that you've written? Mm-hmm. I think back to when I pick up the guitar and sit down to play it, what is the first song I always play? And, or maybe there might be two or three that always come up first, just like there's a little riff I always play. The um, right. mm-hmm. And that may be it, because for whatever reason, either I like the sound of that those songs or they mean more to me for some unknown reason. Um, or maybe they get the best reaction from the crowd every time I perform them, so they've become my favorite for that reason. If Todd Coyle has just gotten back from work and the guitar is sitting over there, and I, I'm assuming you still have the Alvarez Eri uh, WY80 or oh, yeah. W80, oh, yeah. Yeah. which is number wit, which which number is it of the 80? 22. 22. That's 22 out of 80 guitars that they made. It was an anniversary edition. It has the Tree of Life to scroll up the uh, the the fretboard, which is made out of Brazilian rosewood, and then the back and sides yeah. are Brazilian rosewood. And different from the, the typical um, Bob Weir model that Alvarez built, which most of the time was a cedar top, this has a Sitka spruce. So it has a little more bite to it, a little more punch, and uh, that's been Todd's acoustic guitar every time I've ever seen him play acoustic guitar. And even sometimes when he's playing with a band, he's got that out front playing rhythm. Mm-hmm. Is that your main uh, songwriting guitar? Um, it was, but not really. I have about uh, 15 guitars at home, and each one has a different feel and a different thing. And I also keep... I keep that one in standard, and I have another one in drop D, mm-hmm. uh, another one in open D, and another one in open G. And um, um, I'll pick up, you know, a guitar that I haven't played in a while, and I have several Alvarez's. 
Um, I love Alvarez's. And uh, the guitar itself sometimes just points me in a direction. You know, um, that's hard to explain. But I have one of my favorites now is I have a, a, a an Alvarez 12-string that I bought 30-some years ago. And I, um, I only string nine strings on it. So I, um, the, the bay, I take the small string off the bass string and off the E and the A string and off the high E string. And so only the, the middle three strings have the double strings on them. And I love that one for just sitting around and writing songs because it has this, feet, this whole full thing mm-hmm. to it. Um, and you can still get that single bass run. Right. Strumming. Well, that's so, one thing that you are quite good at. Having, like you mentioned earlier, that you, you don't really prefer to play lead, but you can play lead. But when I watch you play, you're very adept at throwing little runs in, in between chords. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that comes from years of listening to the Motown stuff. I, I loved um, Motown and, and and one of the things I did when I was a kid, when I was really got hooked on music, is I had this little transistor radio alarm clock thing. And it's like two or three o'clock in the morning, I could pick up the station out of Chicago. And I used to put it underneath my my pillow because uh, my parents were like right on the other side of the wall. <laughs> and I would listen to like this music coming out of Chicago. But some of it was like the Motown stuff and, and or the soul stuff, you know, um, coming out of various places and they always had these like they're like horn runs so if you listen to like the whole soul stuff you know there's a line and then there's this kind of it's almost um call and response so there's the, uh, the vocal line and then there's this little horn thing that happens at the end of the vocal line um you know in bet- or in between the lines are so that's where those runs come from and, they, and part of that comes from when I was in a band and it was just two acoustic guitars and three singers. Um, my job in that band was to play rhythm, but I also played, we did a lot of soul stuff, a lot of old music, and I had to play not only the rhythm guitar, but the piano parts and the, and the horn parts and those guys. I played those filler things. So I learned how to do that. And, you know, that's where all that comes from. Now, had you taken guitar lessons at some point? Oh, you said your aunt gave you three. Uh, yeah, she gave me three, and then I just kind of took it on my own and, and learned most of it. And I ended up taking a guitar course that they were doing at the high school at night. It was like an adult course, something years later. And I ended up being more like the teacher's assistant than anything. Um, so, not really. Mm-hmm. I, I learned by watching people and playing with people. And, and, you know, if I went to a concert, I would, I would sit there and stare at the guitar player's hands. I actually learned songs from watching somebody play on stage and watching their hands. And then I would go home after the concert, pick on my guitar and remember it, you know, <laughs> and write it down. So you, you, I learned by just doing it and watching and listening. Now, when you were mentioning you have about 15 guitars, I know that you you had, and maybe you still have it, maybe you don't, you had purchased a Taylor Big Baby from Fran Tucker at some point. And I think that's one one of the guitars you have in an altered tuning, isn't it? 
Yeah, I keep that one on open G. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when yeah, I when uh, I heard you play it, it sounded huge. You know, I've heard, I've heard that before. Um, to me, I, I sound the same on, on every guitar I pick up. I don't, you know, I don't. You know, I think the guitar is only part of it. Mm-hmm. And but I I have a, a particular style where I don't use uh, picks. Mm-hmm. You know, I, occasionally I use a thumb pick, um, but I play with my fingers, and I sort of, uh, uh, I grow my uh, my first and second fingers fingernails out longer and I use those as picks and um, I think the the four sound comes from um, the skin against mm-hmm. the strings and that's one thing I read about uh, Dwayne Allman years ago is when he played slide he didn't use a pick because he said you should always have skin on the string mm-hmm. and um, and one of the things is when I was playing with picks I never keep them in my hand I kept dropping them so I learned to play without them yeah so I think I think I think having that skin against the strings creates a, a four kind of a muted four sound mm-hmm. and it allows um, uh, to me it allows me to um, um, control the dynamics of the volume No, it it does because I play primarily. Well, I take that back. When I played up until the time I became a semi-professional musician, which means I had enough gigs that I could actually say I actually earned money from it, I played with just fingernails and and pads of my my you know fingers. And I had a Martin D28, and we were playing back then through a Sure Vocal Master PA, which wasn't the best at reproducing sound. And had a, a Shure SM58 out in front of the, the sound hole, which is, of course, one of the worst places you can place the microphone because you're getting all that air coming out. And Martins have a lot of low end. And it sounded very muffled. So I ended up learning how to strum with a flat pick for that reason. Yeah. So if I want kind of a percussive sound, um, I will use a, a flat pick. But some songs where I want it to be a little more intimate, it's just my fingers. So that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and that's why I use uh, uh, thumb pick sometimes um, because it has a it has a different attack to it. Mm-hmm. So, so different songs and sometimes when I'm with a full band with acoustic guitar, I I use a thumb pick because just for a little extra volume. Yeah. Um, the one thing with playing with fingers is it's soft. Yes. And it's fine when you're playing solo, but when you trying to compete with a you know a drum set sometimes it doesn't work mm-hmm. so, so you know now do you have a specific brand of string that you use on your acoustics martin light gauge okay As, yeah and that's just because it's always been or you've experimented and those are the ones you like the best uh, the first 10 years or so that I played, I'd experimented with all kinds of strings, and occasionally somebody will give me a set of strings and say, yeah, these things are great, you should try them. Um, but I always go back to the mornings. I've just never found anything that sounds better than they, and feels better than they do. Yeah. You know, um, part of it is just how the string feels on the finger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, 
Spike gave me several of that. You remember the Silkworms? Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. I used those for a little while, but they felt weird. I, I'm not sure they sounded any different, but I just didn't like the way they felt. Yeah, the only time I've used those was on my brother's Hofner 12-string because it couldn't take tune, being tuned to pitch without the bridge lifting. So he went to the silk and, and steel to um, lessen the tension. And it did soften the sound of that guitar a little bit, although it was just a little bit because you've got those double coarse octave strings ringing out the whole time. But that's why he put those on there. I've, I haven't used them since. I've... I've decided that at some point I will experiment on some of my guitars where I don't think the guitar itself produces a soft enough sound for me because I do like more of a softer sound. And I, I, I'll get around to it one of these days. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I think I, I bought enough. I used to buy them by the case Yeah, years ago. And, you know, I would have like two or three cases of strings around. And for the electric, I used the Ernie Ball Slinky. So what have you been doing during the pandemic music-wise? There's been really very little, if any, live music. Uh, you know, not much. Um, before the pandemic, uh, there was a couple years there where I, I got really kind of burnt out on playing, and I was not happy with my songwriting, and I didn't feel... I felt like I just worked my butt off for like 40 years, and I all of a sudden got tired. So I took a little bit of break and, and stood back and, and stopped gigging so much. Um, and then I just started gig, uh, booking gigs again um, at the beginning of last year. And I had gigs booked all summer long and the pandemic happened and everything got canceled. So I haven't done much. Now, do you still play as often at home as you used to? Not really. Um, I never practiced that, that much. I just pick it up and play. Mm -hmm. So one thing I found through the pandemic is, and not having gigs is that there's nothing for me to prepare for. Sure. So, I mean, I sit around and, and play or, you know, I might watch a movie and a lot of my songwriting has always happened when I was watching TV or had the TV on in the background. So I just sit there and pick and strum. Um, but not, not like I, I did before. Mm -hmm. I think it's next year is, cause this year is still, you know, things are get. I got my first shot the other day. So, um, I think just from a local standpoint and from a business standpoint, next year is the real recovery year. This year is just sort of creeping back into normality. And and what are your do you have plans as to what you would like to do music wise in the following year? Uh, no solid plan. Actually, I'm running for mayor for the city here. So are you really? That is yeah. that is so cool. Yeah. Well, I'm on town council now, and I mean, part of the things that that music has done for me over the years um, has gotten me into so many places. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I got to play for President Clinton once and I got to play in the state capitol a couple times and, and music has gotten me to meet people that I would have never met before and, and opened up all kinds of doors for me, um, just on a personal level. And 
I've kind of used my, I'm fairly well known as a musician, and I've kind of used that to do community building and try to um, support local businesses and small businesses um, and local farming. You know, it's all about um, uh, culture and, and, you know, when it comes to local cultures, you, you need entertainment and you need food. Mm-hmm. So, so I entertain and with my grocery store, I feed people. <laughs> and to me, it's all tied together. So, when I think about the future of music, I've, between my self-imposed exile for a little bit and then a pandemic, I'm starting to get itchy. Yeah. And I really, I really want to get back into it. Um, so, I know you may be seeing me on Frederick sometime next year. Well, I, I truly hope so. Now, do you have any wish for getting into the recording studio again? Um, not right now. Yeah. Um, you know, when it came to making records, you know, I'm always planning things out and stuff. And, and I, I set goals for myself and all this stuff. And I sort of accomplished those goals. I have a couple other, I have a bunch of songs and I would like to, um, I'd like to record just a kind of a, a bluesy acoustic album, just a real simple thing with a couple of microphones just to down play. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the more produced out, like, you know, my, uh, other CDs that, you know, are not right now. I don't know. Waiting to see how everything works out in the world right now. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's something we're we're all kind of not sure exactly how. We were discussing this over uh, coffee and chai this morning, sitting out at the airport. We were watching planes take off and land. It's kind of a nice, quiet spot to have your coffee, and <laughs> and discussing and and trying to figure out, you know, is life moving forward? Does it include a mask whenever we're in public? And children born today will they not know life as different? In other words, it's just part of life. Hopefully not, of course. And uh, I wish you the best of luck on your second shot. My second shot is, uh, my first shot was this past week, so we're kind of on the same time frame here. So hopefully, um, which um, type of shot did you get? Was it Moderna, Pfizer? Which, which Do you remember? Moderna. Yeah, that's what mine was too. So I'm I'm looking forward to the second shot and... I've already blocked out two to three days after that shot, just in case I'm not feeling well. That's what I've heard. You know, it's, it, that's the funny thing. And that's the thing with this whole pandemic and stuff. With our, our grocery store, like last week was the year anniversary of us switching over to curbside. And we just shut down our store and went right by in and we just did pre-orders. And we did really well. We actually boomed during all this stuff. Oh, that's terrific. Um, but, you know, I've talked to a lot of my customers, and it's funny, like, this one elderly lady hardly had any reaction to it at all. And another friend of mine who's really young and a, and a first responder and, you know, perfect specimen of fitness and kind of thing, it knocked him out for three days. Yeah. Now, I have so, a, a client who's about 78, and he said that he got nothing on the second shot. And you're right. I've also talked to people who kind of in that middle age range, first responders, teachers, and so forth, who said anything from a day to three days. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it, everybody gets affected differently. And it's, and I had a little bit of reaction in my first shot. Did you? I got really tired mm-hmm. and I, and I, um, I, I was tired, but I was anxious and I sweated like crazy and during my sleep that night. And, um, I don't know if it was psychological or, you know, or if it was actually a reaction. Cause I, it, it seems like the last year was just like, I mean, I'm a sci-fi freak and all last year was just like out on a science fiction movie. And I, I felt like, wow, I've watched all this stuff and read about all this stuff in books and stuff, but you know, now it's actually happening. Yeah. (laughs) But my dad lived through the 1918 flu epidemic. He lost a sister and yeah, it changed everything, but eventually things got back to what we call normal. And I think they will. Um, you know, I think everybody, it's what I've stressed with the political entities around here worried about, you know, business and stuff, you know, every business, just like every human, um, deals with this in a different way and it has different reactions. And if we just kind of give everybody a little bit of space and help them out and let people, you know, come back at their own space, uh, at their own, you know, pace, um, we'll be okay. I'm, I'm a firm believer of the same. And, uh, the, uh, we're starting to run out of a little bit of time here, unfortunately, because I'm having such a wonderful time chatting with you. But I I hope in the near future we can get the chance to, because uh, I've always loved chatting with you, even though we never really have more than a two or three minute conversation because we're always at a gig where I'm running it usually. Right. But you're one of my favorite musician people, and I look forward to seeing you again. And I've had a fun time going through your CDs because I have collected so many CDs over the last 20, 25 years that I have stacks in the basement, I have stacks in boxes, and I had to I had to find your CDs. And I found them, and I've been listening to them, and like, I didn't remember looking for Paradise. And the song we're gonna, I'm gonna play once you and I end the conversation in a couple minutes is just one of those days from Just Let It Go CD. And it's mm-hmm. just, that's the one that has kind of a, 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 what I call a Disney Little Mermaid type of feel to the music bed, so it's a, a lot of fun. So, but I've had fun chatting with you, and I hope again, like I said, in the future we can get together in person. I hope so too. It's good talking to you, man. Well, you you as well, and enjoy the rest of this Sunday. I will, uh, and uh, thank everybody out there who's listening. I hope to see you soon. Take care. Thanks so much, Todd. You bet. Bye bye. Well, that was Todd Coyle. What a nice man he is. And every one of my guests has a little bit different musical life, a musical story, whether it's a, whether they're a singer or a guitar player or a songwriter or a cover artist. And it's a whole lot of fun to, to learn more about them. And here's that song I was just uh, mentioning it's called just one of those days from his cd titled just let it go and it does have kind of a disney little mermaid sound let's see if you think so
never noticed that it lived One day in the back of your mind It shows you where it is Hurry on down the hill Catch it before it flies Just as you get there you know it's gone And you never realized The beauty of it all Take that chance again, even though you get the blame. It may not be long before the picture fades away. And if you had that chance again, you know just what you'd say. It's the beauty of it all. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link. wispymopmusic.podbean.com or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.